Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode where I have a very special guest, Nathan Manleon. So Nate used to be my club coach in high school for swimming and has now moved on and is the U.S. Paralympic swim coach for the Olympic team. And today we discuss a lot of topics that would benefit athletes as well as coaches just on um, a lot of his coaching philosophies, how he trains, and then the psychological side of sport and coaching that isn't address as much. So I really think you'll enjoy today's episode. I apologize for my whispery voice as I was trying to podcast in another room while those were sleeping. So we had to do this because the differences between me and Nate are about 17 hours and we had to kind of figure out a different time that would work. So nonetheless, I think the episode went really well and I hope you learned something and enjoy. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, coaches, parents of athletes, or any active person looking to improve their fitness or athletic ability. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Today I have Nathan Manley, my former, arguably, best swim coach on with me today. <laughs> and so he's first off just going to introduce himself and talk a little about his background along with uh, where he's at currently. Uh, then we'll go into some more questions for him. Hey, hey Patrick. Thanks for having me on, man. Um, and yeah, the, the embellishment there is, is appreciated. So... Um, yeah, you know, uh, long story background, I guess I started coaching uh, pretty young, uh, high school and college kind of things. Um, I was a multi-sport athlete, so I probably could have gone into coaching anything, but I was, you know, doing the lifeguarding and swimming lesson thing, and as a competitive swimmer, it just kind of naturally flowed into doing some coaching and summer league things, um, you know, seasonal kind of stuff at high school, um, which is still kind of seasonal, and then ultimately... Um, I did take a job full-time uh, in the club space, uh, ultimately, where, where you and I were able to get together. Um, and, and I did that for quite a while. Um, and during that time, I had an athlete, uh, Elizabeth Stone, who uh, came in and worked with us, and she ended up, um, and Elizabeth's a single-leg amputee, um, and she uh, ended up being a pretty good swimmer, won medals in Beijing and in London. And uh, kind of through that process, I got introduced to the para-swimming space and uh, got more and more involved in that world. And ultimately, uh, five years ago, late 2015, uh, I got an opportunity to come out and work in my current position, which is as the resident team coach uh, for para-swimming athletes who live and train at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center uh, in Colorado Springs. I do some other things too with coach education and supporting national team athletes and things, but my day-to-day work is still training athletes. Okay, and you want to talk a little bit more about kind of what it's like been training Paralympics or Paralympians, whether it's differences compared to, because you did work in the club space with just general normal population, the general population, and then kind of you work in the Paralympic space as well. Right, yeah, good question. And maybe um, just simply for the listeners to draw a little distinction. So I, I do work with uh, a Paralympian currently. So I still have one of the athletes. I had nine athletes that participated in Rio. Uh, one of them is uh, still swimming and training here with me. Um, but like um, I work with athletes who are, are participate in Paralympics, right? So every swimmer is an Olympian. Um, and every swimmer with a disability is a Paralympian. 
Um, so it's still kind of, you know, if you haven't represented your country at games, then uh, you don't get that distinction. So I have several that I work with who are, are dreaming of that Tokyo opportunity coming up and um, are, are really good international right. level. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, sometimes I think there's, it gets a little lost with like special Olympians and um, things like that, a little different um, space. But um, as, as far as working and coaching in that space versus working in life before, um, a lot of it's very similar. I think people ask a lot about, well, okay, how do I do that? Or how do I get certified to do that? Or what would I do? Um, and like you think about it um, for a moment, like physiology doesn't change mm -hmm. based on how many legs I have. And um, physics doesn't change. I'm still suspended horizontally in a fluid trying to get to the other end as fast as I can. So a lot of you know, the things that you either learn through school or through experience working with uh, what we'll call able-bodied athletes, traditional athletes, um, are, is completely applicable. Everybody's got a head and a torso. You kind of start there and work out. Um, there are some unique challenges, I think, you know, so applying those, um, those things that we know to a slightly different puzzle. So mechanics would might be a little bit different for Elizabeth if she's got one leg. So there's a natural imbalance there. How do you account for some of those things? How does that maybe change um, stroke technique? Um, and then I think there's the challenge of balancing kind of uh, training and recovery. So again, if I have, um, you know, no use of my legs, um, how do I factor that into the kind of workloads that I do and knowing that that person lives in a wheelchair all day, so they're using their arms more than I do or more than normal swimmers um, or, you know, able-bodied swimmers or somebody's walking on their legs. So, um, but those are kind of the unique considerations. The rest of it is, you know, you close your eyes, the pool's kind of the same. True, and that kind of brings a point too. So if you could talk about just with um, your able-bodied swimmers versus your uh, para swimmers, kind of what, uh, how did you like factor in the recovery uh, with your training? Because swimming and sports in general are so demanding, and a lot of the time, I feel like nowadays coaches are having to think a lot more about that. Whereas back in the day, it was kind of just go as hard as you can, as long as you can. <laughs> yeah, I would say that was my athletic experience. <laughs> um, so. But, you know, it's a, and it's a really good question um, and uh, a kind of a, a popular topic right now um, the last, you know, several years too, looking at recovery. I think, uh, I think the principles are still the same. So I probably screwed that up as much early on in my career um, with regardless of who I was working with. So there's an experience factor there. So like dealing with workloads and things, um, I think first for coaches, that there needs to be a plan. Right. If you're not if not planning things out over a period of time, um, your weeks, your months, whatever, even a quad plan, um, then it's difficult to know where you've been and where you're going and to factor that in. So there's that cycle of plan, execute, review, revise, and then try it again. Right. Kind of a thing. And if we randomly go at things, then then that there's definitely an opportunity to not be able to learn. So if you screw things up and you plan a week's worth of really intense training and you destroy your athletes for the next week, then, then yeah. So if let's factor that in next time, just, just planning alone will help you learn. Um, I think, I think probably coaches would be good to develop kind of their own assessment tools as well. 
right? And you can get really scientific with this. Um, you can do things with resting heart rate and heart rate variability um, and, and monitoring sleep. And uh, some people do some force plate work, you know, before training to kind of assess neurologically where people are. But it could be as simple as like getting to know your athletes and asking questions too. You know, somebody's a little bit off. Uh, we're watching them warm up, and it's like, yeah, they're just kind of low in the water. Look like they're dragging, um, and making those kind of micro adjustments on a daily basis um, is a, is an important part of that. So, and I, and I think a lot of people look at that and think it has to be all in or all out, right? So I get this athlete that comes in, and they're clearly they you know you ask them, I only slept like four hours last night. You could send them home, but I mean, creating value that day might just be changing the type of work that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we get the most out of now? And that probably creates more value tomorrow and the next day as well, instead yeah. of pushing them through what you had on your clipboard, mm -hmm. um, making them do it, and then losing them the next couple of days or the next week or something too, right? Yeah. Do, do you have anything you specifically use for your tools to determine kind of how you think athletes are? Or your favorites, yeah. I guess? Yeah, a couple of things, um, and I'm you know not sponsored by anyone, um, but we we'll, we use a wearable, um, and so we'll derive some information from that in terms of resting heart rate, heart rate variability, um, and some sleep information. Um, then also some survey kind of stuff. How do you you know um, level of soreness, tiredness, um, some things, and then I think the third piece is just getting to know the athletes a little bit too, right? I I know that some people come in usually very social engaged in the process and when they come in head down and you know they kind of sit in the corner and doing their own thing then something's up I, I try to start with i joke with them a lot too like they try to start with asking them are you okay mm -hmm. and then if they say yes then i yell at them right so it's like let's start with where are you and when they're like no my dog died last night well okay now i have to factor this kind of thing in so there's there's a personal side to it and a scientific probably yeah okay so going back since you were an athlete as well, um, back in the day, now being a coach, what are some things you wish you know now that you may have learned over your entire coaching career and just through general wisdom, wisdom um, that you wish you knew back in your athletic career? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, I, think, um, I think one thing which encompasses a whole lot would be maybe just a better appreciation for how um, kind of well-rounded you need to be as an athlete like all the pieces of the pie mm -hmm. um, you mentioned it before talking about just kind of going as long as you can as hard as you can um, and I think I'm much more um, appreciative of all the things that uh, that go into performance now whether some of the things we just talked about with recovery and sleep um, nutrition is huge um, even basic stuff like technique and things can get lost when you feel like you have to crank out the yardage or the hours or what have you. Um, so really taking that holistic nature in, um, into it, people's mental toughness, people's emotional well-being. Um, there's a lot of mental health, um, you know, uh, things in the news these days, and it's important because we're not taking into consideration the whole athlete if we dismiss some of those challenges that are going on. Uh, so I don't think, you know, that's not a knock on my coaches, right? Um, exactly. But There's I think... There's a culture back in the time compared to... Yeah, for sure. Um, that we've grown and learned a bit there. And I think it's really important that, that coaches um, do that for their athletes. Um, I think another is just learning. And this is, this is just hard as a young athlete. Um, I think learning to separate yourself worth from your sport outcomes, right? 
So that can be super challenging uh, when you think that your parents, you know, feel a certain way about you, or your coaches mm -hmm. feel a certain way about you, or your teammates, you know, wins and losses kind of thing. I think, um, I, I think uh, Dean Smith, the basketball coach at North Carolina, Hall of Fame, retired kind of guy now, I think he said something once about if, uh, if every game is a life and death situation, we're going to have problems. You know, for one, we're going to be dead a lot. So it's like learning to kind of grow beyond, well, we, we won, we lost, I touched first, I, I got touched out, I missed my time that I was shooting for. Um, and have, having yourself settled um, kind of beyond the performance aspects. Yeah. And I feel like another big thing, too, with kind of that mental health and just maturing as an athlete is the communication relationship with the coach and the athlete. Um, do you do anything specific um, to work with your athletes or just have any general advice for the athletes to kind of, either if they don't have confidence, to talk to the coach or just creating some sort of relationship so that you guys can get the best out of uh, for both you guys? Yeah, for sure. So, um I think the coach certainly has some responsibility there, right? If you don't create an environment where someone can come talk to you, can share with you, um, then then no one's going to do that, um, and you're going to miss out on a lot. Um, and I think a lot of your opportunities as a as a person who can help develop them beyond sport, right? Yeah. Um, to be to be more mindful of their their whole life and their career trajectory and things. Um, so. The coach who isn't approachable, who never asks anybody about their personal life and makes time to do those things. Um, and, and I think the easiest way for coaches to do that is just to be open about themselves, right? So you need to be able to tell stories, you need to be able to share about. If they have, they have no idea you have children, for example, like what? <laughs> you know, or that you have some major hobby that takes up a bunch of time in your life, um, that's probably a sign that you're not communicating effectively enough. And I think you'll get that reciprocity. The hardest thing is creating the time for that. I think a lot of, you know, an athlete comes to practice and that's the only time they have with you. And for you to spend a bunch of time dedicated to them during a training session is hard. Yeah. So creating those opportunities um, is important and in the right spaces, right, you know. So, um, but you've, you've got to do that, I think, especially as you grow into your teen and, and, um, and 20s, if you really want to start to individualize what you do Right, so you take all of this instruction and learning and experience. At some point, you've got to start to own it because everybody's an individual, and you have to start to parse out what is what is best for you. How do I take this and apply it to my life? When is a good time to say no? And if you don't have that kind of trusting relationship with your coach, um, which you need to have um, with them anyway, because they you're the one that gets up on the block, or you're the one that goes and plays on the field. Like ultimately, I don't go back out there anymore. So you have to be satisfied. So if I make you do stuff that you, you don't trust, then you get up on the blocks dissatisfied. So there, there's a back and forth there. And again, especially as they grow older, to develop that relationship. And for me to be able to say, look, I know you well enough that if you say that's it for today mm -hmm. or you needed something a little different to create value today, then, then we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that makes brings me another good point of, so there's pretty much there's different levels and ages with athletes. So you have your youth, teen, college, and pro are kind of four different separate, I guess, ages and levels of athlete. So as a coach, what do you recommend the athlete to focus on kind of during each one, whether it is just like men mentality type stuff or um, physical stuff as well, uh, with just kind of generally in sports or in swimming specifically? Okay, yeah. So... Um that's a good question. So generally, I think if you're looking at youth, 
so like the preteen kind of stuff, 12 and under maybe, or even into the early teens. And this is a lot about retaining them in the sport, mm-hmm. right? So everything that you do ought to be with young kids ought to be about hoping that you're not their last coach, right? Or your last coach in that sport, right? I, I want you to have another coach. Um, so, and that's not just fun in games, but it probably does involve like a, an element of fun, right? But it certainly involves keeping things interesting and engaging um, and thinking about what's developmentally appropriate, um, all of the team aspects that go into it, like everything, um, whether it's um, doing developing technique work or basic movement comp, um, competency and things like that as young kids should all be directed towards it being engaging and, and, and fun, really. People don't like that word, but like, so that they want to keep going. Because mm-hmm. you and I have both seen, like, you know, the eight year old or the 10 year old or the 12 year old that was top of their state or whatever, like that. And they don't amount to much anything after that because, like, we didn't keep them around. They got burned out or whatever you want to call it. So I, th- I think that youth speech should be really focused on fundamentals, basics, um, and then also, like, with everything in mind of keeping them in the sport. Uh, if you get to the teen space, hopefully you've got a good foundation. And then I think putting a little more pressure on the work and helping them um, appreciate that, like that, that's required. Like people would like to do it lots of different ways, but the bottom line is if you don't work your tail off mm-hmm. on a regular basis and you're not willing to do some of the boring things sometimes, like it's probably not gonna optimize your, your performance. Yeah. Um, and they, there's some really good windows there developmentally too, I think for them to um, to train up to um, to being a better athlete as they get a little bit older than that. So it's kind of like investing in their physical, physiological bank to take payments um, for later there. So investing then. Um, college, we started to talk about like that individualization kind of piece. Um, you know, I could see a lot of college athletes coming to the training center and working with their coaches and things. And while there's team aspects and everybody's going to do some stuff, it's pretty easy to spot when athletes are going okay this is what i need something a little bit different or they're leaving practice early and you think well some olympian just walked by me headed to the locker room and then we're only an hour into practice well it's not because he's a lazy bum he's got medals around his neck so it's learning to individualize that process because of all the work that you've done um over the years um and it professional was that your fourth category there yeah i guess generally you know, yeah much, much um, different from college I mean, all those things accumulate, right? So yeah. they're probably all coming with you. But maybe as professional athletes, I think there has to become a little bit more of a focus on, what. okay, what's the bigger picture, mm-hmm. right? So if all I'm wrapped up in is winning the Super Bowl or Wimbledon title, like life gets pretty empty pretty quick, and we don't see those careers go very long or stay very healthy. So like these guys that have their foundations and they clear real family ties, religious aspects. I think when, when you see those people that have got something bigger than themselves that they're kind of playing for, Andre Agassi wrote a great book about his experience and how he was just trashed and doing drugs and stuff and he finally realized he needed to play for something other than himself and he started helping inner city kids, I think it was this foundation and totally resurgence. He shaved his head and uh, and had a complete resurgence in his career and was amazing. But uh, he attributes that all to realizing they finally had to find like there, there's more to winning than, than that. So I think that in that professional space, it's, yeah, what is, what is your platform allowing you to do? 
and then helping you be a little bit healthier all the way around. Yeah, and that could kind of even tail into, do you, would you kind of give that same advice for someone that, let's say, either is finishing up their last year at college or finishing up professionally, and they're just hardly, like, having a hard time finding what to do afterwards? Because I know a lot of athletes, like, they identify as a athlete, and that's what they do, and when they're done with that, you know, they kind of don't have anything. So do you think it's pretty important for athletes to not only do their sport but have some sort of um, other hobby or interest outside to, you know, to either keep their mind off or what other whatever sport for a little bit of time and then have something to do when they're done as well. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. We see a lot of issues in that tr- career transition kind of phase, right? Mm-hmm. So I think whether you're a younger kid or you're high school or something and you have this, you kind of you have these opportunities or a platform because of the sport you play. You, you recognize a little bit differently at school or you get opportunities to travel and, and things. There's probably opportunities throughout your career to think about what you're doing beyond just the sport aspects of it. Um, and I think really good you know, clubs, teams, programs, universities are good at helping people engage, right? They're doing things in the community, um, you know, big brother, big sister kind of things, mentoring younger kids on your swim team. Um, and I think that can lead towards, okay, look, there's something more than just me involved here. And that helps, like you said, whether I'm into college and going, well, I, you know, I think I'm kind of done with sport. Um, but how do I use that experience? Or I'm going to keep doing this forever, but, or as long as I can, but, um, but there's got to be more to it than this. I will eventually transition. So, um, yeah, I I think you're spot on. So what, um, just kind of more mentality with coaching and athletes in general, what advice do you have for athletes or coach and or coaches of how to stay motivated throughout the training process, um, of a demanding sport? Oh yeah, and some repetitive sports that can be mm-hmm. can be pretty hard. Um, you know, basketball, football, some of these team sports and things like that. Not so much. Um, you get a little more competition, and um, things can be really different from one game to the next kind of thing. The black line in swimming is like, you know, I'm on one side or the other of it. So, um, I, it's a lot of playing personal games. So we talk about some smallest achievable perfection kind of things uh, where it's like okay what can I what can I work on today that I'm actually you know I'm close to getting really good at and you know how successful can I be whether it's percentage wise or a certain number or a certain distance or a certain right so playing games with yourself um, in, in the training environment um, you know Daniel Coyle wrote some really um, good stuff in the last few years on like making the most out of training environments and um, there's a lot of that kind of thing. How do I take the um, repetitiveness and make it a little bit more intense and focused, even if it's for shorter periods of time? So being aware as a coach is you kind of design things um, to, even if you have to do some long, arduous, kind of boring sort of work, how do you create some more purpose out of it than just turning your brain off and going for an hour? Um, and, and you can do that as an athlete, even if you're not super well coached, right? You got to go in and play the games with yourself and take some ownership of your own um, kind of coaching. And then I think that's the goal system that we always talk about. So if I've got this dream of making the team for Tokyo, um, I've got to be able to dial that back to what performance looks like and then how do I build that performance? So if I can see that today or this week, I'm making a step in a direction towards performing the way I want to. So executing a turn zone better 
or um, doing some pacing more consistently, I can see a direct connection to the work I'm doing today to the goal I have in the future. And, and I think that helps to sustain some motivation, right? True. Do you have any specific like objective tools you use, swimming specific or just general sport? Um, because I know like you can always say, you know, like your turns looked better each day to an athlete or something, or this looked better, but for them to actually be able to measure it themselves and realize themselves that they've done it, um, seems obviously seems to help a lot more. So do you have anything specific you use for that? Yeah. And I, I think that the kind of phrasing you're talking about is something that we have to learn to as coaches and I, I have to catch myself all the time going, Oh, that's better. Like to not quantify that mm-hmm. in any way is, is not good. Um, I think one of the specific things we do, there's probably a few things, but one of the specific things we try to do is draw some connection between uh, the racing analysis that we can do and then how we can do those pieces in training. So if I watch a 100 freestyle race, I can, I can time and measure certain pieces of it, right? So how fast people react off the block, you know, uh, how fast they can go from the block to 15 meters, uh, the tempo of their stroke rate, um, their turn zone, um, and, and certainly those other pieces like how, how fast do, do they go from one end to the other, right? Um, and then we can take those pieces back into training. So instead of just doing turns and saying, oh, that was better, um, let's time it. So we know when we're racing, we're looking to be under five seconds for your turn zone. Well, that was five, two. And now, okay, so how can we make that a little bit better and then talk about it specifically? But when you have that, that measure to it, that quantifiable piece, then the athlete kind of knows where they stand, and um, that's that's motivating too. How do I how do I make that a little bit better? I need two more tenths to be where I want to be. True. So for that, because you can objectively break a lot of that down for um, just general, I guess like physics or race strategy. Like mm-hmm. How much um, do you focus on specifically with general exercise pr- science principles, physiology, and, and stuff like that when programming practices? How much is it um, for you? Uh, like looking at all the signs compared to just doing necessarily what you've kind of figured out through your own experience and research with training and swimming, I guess. Um, and you can redirect me if I can go where you want to go. But um, I, I think the answer is like it's it's both, right? So yeah. I'm going to have to start with principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a young coach, hopefully you, you've studied up and you've read the textbooks and you've had people mentor you and things. And so you're usually copying, essentially. Like this is a this seemed to be a successful way of doing things. This is how I, I I program out a season. This is what kind of energy systems I'm focusing on more here versus there. Um, this is how I, I create rest, an opportunity to bounce back, kind of a thing. Um, and then and then hopefully as you go through that process we talked about before with planning and reviewing and revising and stuff. Um, you start to add your own flavor and experience to those things so that, you know, you have your own unique take on it based on your experience, but it's it's grounded in a pretty, you know, scientifically based system that should yeah. be pretty dependable. And that's, I think, one thing that's really interesting is the similarities between strength conditioning and swimming coach because swimming is pretty much just a lot of your conditioning side of the strength and conditioning um, role, and whereas a lot of other... Uh, like team sports and stuff it's not necessarily conditioning based a lot more skill based dependent on um, and strategy wise so kind of you have a really good background in exercise science and stuff like that what do you and I feel like a lot of coaches nowadays um, at like a college level like that don't necessarily have that exercise science background or know anything in general 
about that do you have do you recommend for them or or to like some sort of either go to a course or learn more about that specifically or just fall back on the strength coach for or some athletic trainers or physio physiotherapist to help with that right so I, I think I hear two sides to the question one is no I think you ought to keep learning and you do get a lot of this I was an athlete so I can coach people um, kind of a thing so I'm working exclusively off of my experience and really it's fairly narrow because I got coached by a guy or a couple two or three people and this guy when I was an age grouper um, so to limit yourself to that knowledge would be would be kind of unfortunate for your athletes right you might get along just fine but you've <laughs> you've uh, robbed your athletes of an opportunity. So even if you didn't get a degree in exercise physiology or, um, or any other applicable field, to be able to continue to learn is a really important part of just being a good coach. Yeah. Um, I When I talk to coaches, sometimes I liken it to your doctor, right? So if your doctor is operating off of information that they learned 30 years ago in school, it's probably gonna kill you, right? Like things change, we learn, research gets done, um, you know, we bled George Washington to death. So let's let's move on and, and keep growing um, with those things. And, and that requires you to constantly be learning and open to new things. No one talked to me about mindfulness when I was an athlete. Yeah. That would have seemed very, like, zen or something, right? Um, but it's it's a it's a current topic it's a thing that we've learned to take advantage of it's a thing we've learned to talk about better mm -hmm. so if i'm going to get stuck back how i was i'm robbing my athletes of that opportunity so i've got to read and study and make sure i get it to a degree at least that i know when to bring in the other professional sure. so strength and conditioning like i'd better know some stuff about how what they're doing in the weight room applies to what happens in the pool and what happens in the pool maybe can even detract from what they're doing in the weight room. There's some basic knowledge that I better get. And then enough to know, too, when, like, there's an area of deficiency, right? And I can go to you as the strength and conditioning coach and say, okay, well, I don't maybe necessarily know the answer to the problem, but here's this problem that we need to work on, I think, mechanically um, or strength-wise, and how can we do that in the weight room, right? Same thing with sports psych or nutrition. If I know nothing... I probably never consult the outside source, yeah. um, but if I can if I can be studied up well enough and, and listen to other people's counsel and things well enough, then I can you know maybe I identify that shoulder issue that's developing a little sooner, yeah. get them to the right person. I don't have to fix it myself. Mm -hmm. And so, just our topic is, or a lot of it has been talking about like psychology as well and mindfulness and all that. So, mm -hmm. for athletes, what do you give the recommendation? Uh, when they have a big pressure sporting event, uh, as in like a big race or a big game or something like that, what advice do you give them to kind of cope with that and perform at their highest possible level? So I would say this is one of the biggest errors I made early on in coaching, and that was having that kind of discussion at like at the competition or just before competition, right, or once uh, taper started. Um, the best thing that you can do to ease anxiety and deal with big pressure moments and things is to be really well prepared. So if I know I've prepared going back months and even years for some of these athletes in this quad space, and I, I've done the work and I've performed leading up to that, all of the evidence says I'm, I'm going to do well, that, that's really the best and maybe the only way to really put yourself in a position of confidence like I know I can do this mm -hmm. to kind of fake it sometimes with you know tricks and and things at the end 
you've you've missed the boat like that's that's hoping and wishing and you might get lucky um but the people who know they've prepared and can do what they set out to do you know we can't control everything but like uh, the things that they can those are the ones who can go in with confidence the people who are unprepared that's where the most anxiety is because they don't know what's going to happen They're like yeah. ah, i don't know how i'm going to swim um and so I think that's the biggest thing you can do. The, the mental skills are real. Those are important. Um, and individuals need different things. That's probably also a, a long-term project as well, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody you notice really struggles in that competitive space, hopefully you identify that before you get to the, to the big one. And you've helped them connect with people or you've worked with them enough to go, okay, when this happens, here, here are our strategies. And some of it can be just reminding yourself that you're prepared, mm-hmm. right? But some other people get really tore up by the competitors and things that they say and do or the people in the audience or things like that. So, yeah, there are real skills to develop and, and work on there. Um, but it happens in the months and years leading up to that, that moment. Yeah. Actually, in, um, it was totally not for any sporting thing. It was for school because we went into a pretty intense subject. One of my professors the other day, I thought it was a really good quote. It was, don't be nervous, be prepared. I think that kind of mm-hmm. goes along with what you're saying. I think that, I thought that was a pretty good quote that kind of goes along. Yeah, super smart. <laughs> um, so what in general for athletes would you say is your biggest piece of advice um, just because you've been an athlete yourself and three years of coaching? Biggest piece of advice for athletes to um, just perform their best and enjoy sports as well because that was another big proponent that you always tried to preach of learning through sports and life lessons. I I think that um, again, we've touched on a, a little bit already. I think so. For the athlete, I would say, like, um, appreciate that there's more to this experience than the outcomes. Um, so that that never means not striving to be our best and trying to win and, and compete to the best of our abilities and train to the best of our abilities. But your value is not tied to your finish in the sport. Um, appreciate all the the holistic things that we talked about those are really life skills like learning to manage stress and to sleep and to eat right and stuff good grief look around on the street um people don't know how to take care of themselves effectively we have rampant metabolic disease and all kinds of things that i think as athletes if we can learn to take care of ourselves when we're not athletes anymore we can live like an athlete and take care of ourselves better so there's all this value beyond sport um and I think that purpose piece too. So how do I have some impact really is what we're talking about, I think on others through the opportunities that sport gives me, um, whether that's something super local um, or it becomes you know a platform that you have that reaches internationally because you're an Olympic or Paralympic level athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and coaches can help, I think, foster all of that stuff, right? So making sure that you are coaching for the athlete and not for yourself. And when you do that, you start to take into consideration all the things that they need um, and not just whether you win or lose, right? So winning at all costs is, is never okay because um, that's all about the coach. Um, so um, taking that holistic approach into consideration, uh, developing them as people and thinking about long-term. See, I'd like to have lots of athletes who want to discuss things, you know, 10 years after we work together um, because you know, or in the space working with other people uh, because of the things that we did and the work that we did. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
yeah, I think, I think those go hand in hand. And then what would you say, um, forgive me if this is not the correct term, but for like para-athletes in general, uh, what's your biggest advice for coaching or and para-athletes, I guess, because it's a, it's, I mean, it is a lot of the similar, but if there's anything specific to those two that would help um, either of those two people, either the coaches or para-athletes in general. Yeah, um, good question. So I think going both ways, like one of the biggest barriers, and that maybe this would be surprise some people because um, it's 2020, but I think it's just, it's almost a fear factor kind of a thing. So as the athlete, um, can I do that? Would I be accepted? Um, you know, what does good look like? Um, and all that kind of stuff. And as coaches thinking that they, they wouldn't know what to do with that. Right. So I don't know what to do with a blind swimmer. How do I show them what I want them to do? Yeah. Um, so I think just getting past the, like, look, it's just an athlete who wants to be the best that they can be, period. Just like any of your other athletes. Um, and I think as coaches, we constantly are making um, modifications, changes, adjustments, whether it's because we have a variety of abilities in our in our practice or on our lanes or what have you, um, or ages, um, genders, or I go from coaching an age group practice to working with like a master's team. Like I'm making changes. I know that intuitively as a coach, I apply what I know a little bit differently. And I, that's really the strategy with a para-athlete. Um, and then I think the, the, the second part of the fear is like, okay, so like, how do I, like you don't have legs, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like, well, yeah, I know that. This is how I live, right, yeah. all day, every day. So how do I have this conversation, which seems uncomfortable to me at first about just talking about disabilities um, and how do I live and how do I work with those and getting information from the athlete? I think um, I can recall when I came out to uh, the training center many years ago and did like kind of a little interviewing with uh, working with the national team and I, I took some trips internationally with things, but they vet people and um, One of the athletes asked whether I was comfortable with them joking about their disabilities, mm-hmm. right? And fortunately I had my experience with Elizabeth who You know well enough to know that any anything and everything is fair game kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, That I, I get it like if you can't Except that this is how people are living and operating, and be able to laugh about things appropriately and, and joke about stuff, then you can't make that connection. So to just be able to to be real and be like, okay, like I don't live in a wheelchair, you got to talk to me. Yeah. Okay, how does this go? How does this feel? So a lot of those are just kind of a fear, uncomfortable based kind of things. Um, and if people can get past that, man, there's some amazing experiences I think you can have with bringing an athlete along that that maybe not everybody was going to take the time to try to help excel. Mm-hmm. And do you have anything specific you really want, would have advice or just general things you want to say that we didn't cover necessarily? Anything else you want to highlight with your coaching experience or advice for people and your massive breadth of knowledge? <laughs> um, I, I thought you were pretty thorough, actually. Um, you know, if I had had to pick a few things to you know, advice for coaches. I'm the one looking for advice, not usually giving it, but, um, but I think we've hit on them. I mean, that continual growth, um, the, the holistic nature of your job and, um, the personal nature of your job too, with working with athletes, um, as well as just, you know, what is, what is this kind of dual goal, um, 
a process look like? Winning, we obviously want to win, mm. but developing people and developing purpose and impact. Um, I, I think we touched on all of those. You, you really were pretty thorough. Thanks, Coach. <laughs> you bet, <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much for being on and working through those minor issues we had in the beginning. Yeah, no problem. It's it's a long ways away. I'm glad you guys are getting a little rain out that direction too. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, definitely the fires have been pretty, pretty intense. So, so donate if you can. It's another message on the podcast. Um, but yeah, definitely. Thanks again, and uh, hopefully, I mean, maybe another time we can be on another episode when we get it all pat down pat. <laughs> I would love it. Thank you for having me and let me chat with you a little bit. It was really good to to talk with you. Um, We'll have to catch up more on on you and your life too. (laughs)